You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm talking today about lymphadenopathy. I'm joined by Dr. Julie Stern, who's an attending physician, professor of pediatrics, and director of outreach services with the Division of Oncology, also at CHOP. So thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Katie. Great, so let's start right off in the newborn period. So parents are often concerned about these posterior auricular nodes, and why are these so common, and should I ever worry about those? So they are a, a fairly common finding in the newborn period. Um, I'm not exactly sure of the etiology, to be completely honest, um, but they generally, they should be very small. Mm -hmm. So if you have a node that's you know, definitely less than a half a centimeter and resolves you know, within a couple of weeks, I would think usually of birth, it's probably fine. Mm -hmm. Larger nodes are more concerning. Um, and I think it's also important to make sure that they truly are nodes mm -hmm. and not representative of something else. Like a cyst or something? Could be a cyst, it could be a cystic hygroma, it could be a, a um, uh, abnormality in, in development, um, mm -hmm. it could be a brachial cleft, it could be a lot of different things. Right. Um, so I think, you know, obviously a posterior auricular should be solidly behind the ear. It might mm -hmm. not be, um, you know, those should be pretty clear. But um, they are a very common finding. Mm -hmm. um, but they I blame it on the soft. cradle cat. I don't know if that's fair. Yeah, but. so it's, so definitely I think, I, I guess I'm sort of separating the immediate newborn period yeah. sort of like in the first week or so versus what happens a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks later. Right. So that neon, if you want to extend the neonatal period into the first two months, um, then definitely any kind of, of cradle cap or um, any other sort of um, infectious or irritant type of thing going on in the head definitely can cause posterior auricular nodes mm -hmm. for sure. Right. Some children that I see in clinic seem to always have reactive nodes and obviously some some of these kids I'm only seeing once a year so I might just be catching them during cold and flu season but are there some kids who are just more prone to having these palpable shoddy nodes than others or should I be concerned when every time I see them they have a bunch of nodes? So I think it really depends on the age of the child. Um, there have been some large studies done that have shown that at any sort of um, either well visit or any other visit to the to the doctor, children in the preschool and school age, young school age, mm -hmm. um, uh, toddler age uh, group have, you know, probably 50 to 60% of kids will have palpable nodes mm -hmm. in that age group. So it's really, it's a very, very common physical exam finding at that point. It's rarely pathologic. Yep. Um, and I think, you know, kids, and that makes sense, right? Kids in that age have recurrent viral infections, right. are exposed to a lot of things right. for the first time, and their bodies are doing what they should be doing normally. They're, they're in, reacting to their environment, they're building their immune system, and part of that is the lymph nodes getting enlarged. Mm -hmm. I think unless the nodes are in an unusual location, or they're larger than what you would expect, mm -hmm. or there's other systemic um, concerns. Uh, finding palpable lymph nodes on an otherwise healthy two, three, four-year-old child is mm -hmm. generally not something to worry about. You said, though, it depends on age, so do I worry more if that child is 10, 11, 12? 
So the older you get, the less frequent the physical exam um, mm-hmm. will show up with with palpable nodes. But I think you know kids who have had a history of that in the past, or kids who have a lot of eczema, or have other mm-hmm. you know reasons where you can come uh, where you can sort of uh, reasonably think about why they would have reactive adenopathy. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty pretty normal. But again, it comes down to age, size, location. Mm-hmm. Right. We've been talking so far about sort of normal lymph nodes that we find on exam, but let's talk a little bit more about abnormal. So when we have an enlarged node that's not decreasing in size or the patient has systemic symptoms like fever, weight loss, how should we proceed with a diagnostic workup to rule out malignancy if that's in our differential? So do we kind of do labs, PPD, chest x-ray all from the beginning or is there a stepwise approach that we could take? So I think it depends on how high your level of suspicion is. You know, if Mm -hmm. you have a child who had been, you know, totally healthy and they're now three years old and they come in and they're pale and they're limping and they've got unexplained bruises and they've got lots of palpable lymph nodes. Mm -hmm. Even if they're small, but they seem to be everywhere, that's obviously much more concerning for leukemia. Right. Um, And in that case, um, starting with the CBC Mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, If your suspicion is high enough and you're putting the needle in the arm, it's mm-hmm. great to get a chemistry panel if you can at mm-hmm. the same time. If not, if you don't think of it, don't remember, that's fine because if the child has leukemia, we're gonna do that anyway right. when they come in. Um, and then in an older child who maybe it's not quite so clear, they're, mm-hmm. you know, they don't have the same uh, uh, presentation uh, right. necessarily. Um, you know, A teenager that comes in with a big supraclavicular node but otherwise is feeling okay, but the supraclavicular area is an area that you'd be really worried about, then starting with labs and probably a chest x-ray mm-hmm. is important. Right. Um, for the, you know, leukemia needs a chest x-ray as well, but it, again, it depends on if they have respiratory symptoms or right. not, and, and we'll help guide you through that. Right, so maybe not the first step, depending on their pre- presentation. Depending on their presentation, for mm-hmm. sure. So we know that fixed, <coughs> non-tender, and or matted lymph nodes are more concerning for malignancy. You mentioned supraclavicular. There are other locations that are high risk, so where else should we be examining? Sure. So I think supraclavicular is the number one place mm-hmm. that people get worried about. And I think the tricky thing is distinguishing a low-lying anterior node yes. from a supraclavicular <laughs> node. Um, I feel nodes all the time, and I have to tell you, there are times I'm not sure which one they are. Right. <laughs> it's really, it's challenging. Yeah. Um, a true supraclavicular node should really feel like it's coming up from underneath the clavicle. Mm-hmm. Like if you could feel where it would be, where you could push it back to, you know, potentially right. on exam, it would feel like it would tuck right back underneath, Got as it. opposed to an anterior cervical node, which really feels like it's coming down through the neck and then extending onto the uh, clavicle. Got it. The infraclavicular region is a very rare presenting um, space, but I have seen a couple of kids who have had lymph nodes under their clavicle and that can be very concerning. Um, axillary nodes may or may not be concerning. It mm-hmm. kind of depends on the clinical situation. What about inguinal? Inguinal nodes are tough. I mean, again, I think it depends on the size. Um, you know, if you have a teenager, are they shaving? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of kids shave their pubic hair, and, right. you know, that's becoming more and more common, and reactive nodes in that area thus are also becoming more common. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty normal to feel tiny little... Um, inguinal nodes in young babies and in young toddler children that Mm -hmm. it's not generally a concern unless they're very big or unless the texture feels abnormal you know Mm -hmm. if the if they're really really rock hard like pebbles that's very concerning Mm -hmm. are there any nodes that need an early biopsy that we should be 
worried enough about to send to Onco Clinic? So I think, again, I think it comes back to your sort of level presentation, of presentation and level of suspicion. Um, we see kids directly for workups for adenopathy. Sometimes it ends up being benign. Sometimes it ends up being a malignancy. Mm -hmm. We have kids who come in through ENT clinic. We have kids who come in through um, general surgery. Mm -hmm. um, I think sometimes it's a difficult conversation to say, I'm worried your child might have cancer, mm -hmm. so I want you to see oncology. It's a little bit easier to say, let's figure out what this is, and we'll send you to a surgeon. Right. Depending on where kids go, you know, usually right. they make their way to us, um, right. but uh, we like to be involved from the very beginning because sometimes kids don't need a lymph node biopsy. Sometimes mm -hmm. all they need is a CBC mm -hmm. and a chest x-ray. Right. I'm happy to field those phone calls and you, mm -hmm. I'm happy for people to call and say, this is the clinical situation. I'm not sure whether I need to be worried about this. Would it be best to go to surgery first? Would it be best to come to us? And oftentimes we're able to um, arrange for combined appointments mm -hmm. um, so that patients can be seen by multiple services on the same day mm -hmm. if it ends up that that's what they need to, yeah. to do. Great. I know I had a patient who had an ultrasound of a node that was concerning but not very clear. And so we did refer to oncology and you guys coordinated with surgery to do everything together, which the patient very much appreciated. Right. Right. It's a scary place to come to oncology, but sometimes we need to be involved in the beginning because mm -hmm. there are studies that we need to get done before kids go to the operating room um, and mm -hmm. really to, to make sure that we have a good clinical picture mm -hmm. before the kids have a procedure. Right, great. In teenage patients, EBV is a common cause of lymphadenopathy, and some are inclined to treat the swelling seen in EBV patients with steroids. But we know that EBV is a transforming virus that's been causally linked to a variety of malignancies, and the use of steroids in EBV is controversial. So in your opinion, should we ever use steroids in patients with lymphadenopathy? <laughs> oh, I... <laughs> this is such a tough question. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, I'm coming at this with my bias, yes. right? I mean, I see kids who have cancer. Right. I see kids who have been treated with steroids for a cancer they didn't know they had. Right. Um, and that can change sometimes treatment, sometimes prognosis a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and it certainly can have implications in terms of getting to the correct diagnosis quickly. Right. Um, and so I think if you are absolutely convinced and you have serologic proof that this is EBV and you really feel like you have a strong clinical reason to use steroids in that situation but you know for sure that's what the patient has mm -hmm. I don't think that's wrong right um, I think if it what I worry about is sort of an indiscriminate use of steroids right you know and I will not necessarily and it depends on where I'm going but you know a lot of times I'll see kids who have been seen by an adult ENT mm -hmm. who just throw steroids on on everything right. and that is problematic mm -hmm. um, nine times out of ten nine point five times out of ten mm -hmm. those kids are going to be fine because they don't have cancer right but if they do you have now Yes, the, the notes. If you if you've got leukemia or lymphoma, it's going to respond to steroids because right. that's part of chemotherapy. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to get better, but that's not going to be the only treatment they need, and right. then it's going to be worse later on. Yeah. So, 
It's a tough question. Yeah. It's a really tough question. I don't envy right. you. <laughs> make this. Yeah, and yeah. it's the same for kids who come in with wheezing for the first time. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's a really tough, tough thing too. You know, if a kid who's never wheezed before, who has no, um, you know, history of of uh, eczema, has no family history of asthma mm -hmm. or or uh, family history of of allergies, and they're wheezing for the first time, I think it's worth the question. Is this truly asthma, mm -hmm. or is something else causing this wheezing? Because mm -hmm. if you have an undiagnosed mediastinal mass, it's going to get better with steroids, mm. and then it's not. And kids can be really sick when they come back in. You're scaring a lot of primary care pediatricians. I don't right mean now. to, <laughs> and I really don't mean to scare you because I yeah. think you know when you need to use steroids, right. right? I mean, if you have a kid who's wheezed forever, and this is a very typical you know, type of episode for them and they have a known trigger. I'm not talking about those types right, of kids. Right. I'm talking about kids who you've no idea why they're wheezing. Right. They've never yep. wheezed before. Mm -hmm. Or a kid who has wheezed before, but this episode is different. different There's right. something about this episode. They have more adenopathy. Mm -hmm. They have other systemic, mm -hmm. you know, uh, symptoms. They're bruising mm -hmm. more. They're, you, this is where a really good history and exam mm -hmm. really plays such an important role. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, we know that steroids are really important when kids have an acute asthma exacerbation. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to, to say that it doesn't play a role. It mm -hmm. does. I think it's just worth the, the tickle in the back of your mind of, is this all I'm dealing with? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've mentioned bruising a few times, and this just reminded me that we often see tons of bruises on the lower extremities in the toddler preschool age cohort, and parents are like, oh yeah, they jump in off of everything and fall and bump into right. things. So um, do we ever have to worry if the bruises are localized to a particular area like that, or are they usually spread you know, in soft, fleshy parts as well? Yeah, so the bruising that I'm talking about is really the sort of unexplained bruising. Mm -hmm. I have no idea how he got that. Or he, all he did was bump his arm, and he's got this really large, dark mm -hmm. bruise that seems out of proportion right. for the injury that caused it. Um, you know, I... I get a ton of referrals for kids with bruising on the anterior shins right. and it's almost always yeah. <laughs> totally normal. Um, but you know, it's the kids that present with um, either larger or darker or palpable mm -hmm. bruising or petechiae that mm -hmm. you can't explain or oral bleeding that you can't explain. Mm -hmm. Those are the, the kids that are going to start to really get your attention. Yeah. Right. When we are thinking about a malignancy, how do we discuss malignancy as a potential diagnosis without unnecessarily scaring or falsely reassuring when we're kind of still in the workup phase? Yeah. That's a really, really important question. I know this could be hours long. Yeah. We could do a whole talk on this. Um, you know, I think, it, I think that honesty is really important. Mm -hmm. I think that, again, it depends on your level of suspicion. If there's something you're like, eh, I just, I want to check. I'm right. not sure I, this this deserves more mm -hmm. evaluation. That's one conversation. Right. It's a different conversation if a child walks in and you, your heart just sinks. Right. And you know. Right. When there's um, tons of red flags waving at you. Right. <laughs> From across the room <laughs> yeah. that you cannot miss. Yeah. Um, so I think that, I think that being honest about what you know and what you don't know mm -hmm. is really important. Um because you don't have all the answers yet. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the important thing I think to, to reassure families with is that you're gonna get them to the place where the answers can be mm -hmm. found right. um, and then the next steps can be taken. 
sometimes families come in and they have no idea their child has cancer. Right. And other times families come in and they're, they have, Googled it. well, <laughs> either they've Googled it or they know something is wrong and right. they're too afraid to actually put it into words. Right. Because if they put it into words, it becomes very real. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that sometimes just that knowledge that you're listening to them and you're acknowledging what their suspicions are, I think is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, the times that we struggle, or the, the hardest for us on the receiving end, is when families come to us and they have no idea that somebody has thought their child might have cancer. Right. And that's a really, really unfortunate situation mm-hmm. because, because it's a difficult conversation to have. I'm not saying that it's not, yeah. um, but not being honest about what you're thinking ahead of time mm-hmm. in some ways in the long run can really come back and be very hurtful for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, you know, the way I usually do it, it depending, again, it depends on my level of suspicion as mm-hmm. well and the age of the child. Is oftentimes, even with the teenagers, I'll try to get the parents alone first because mm-hmm. you need to give them an opportunity to kind of react. Right. But then you have to bring the kids into it too. Right. So sometimes I'll sit down with families and I'll, you know, and the child will be in the playroom or doing whatever and I'll say, this is what I heard when you came in. Mm-hmm. These were your worries when you came to see me. This is what I see on your child's exam mm-hmm. that's making me concerned. Right. This is what I think we need to do now. So if you have a kid who comes in who's had three ear infections that you cannot kick with antibiotics and is still febrile mm-hmm. and is now bruising and is now pale and you're worried that the child could have an underlying leukemia, mm-hmm. you don't have to say leukemia right then necessarily. But you can say, we need to get some blood work mm-hmm. and we need to get that blood work today. Right. It may be nothing. But when you're done having the labs drawn, I want you to come back. Mm -hmm. So that good, bad, or indifferent, we can sit down and have a conversation about it. Because I think that in person, rather than doing it on the phone, if you have the opportunity to Mm -hmm. do that, Mm -hmm. can be very helpful. And then when it comes back and the blood work is, you know, abnormal in some way, it may not even be diagnostic, but just abnormal in some way, you can say, you know, this is the results of your child's blood work. Mm -hmm. This is why I'm worried. It may be an infection. It may be this. It may be that. But it could be something more serious. Mm-hmm. It could be something like leukemia. We need to investigate this further, and we need to get you to the right place right. today or tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, and and just I think that kind of approach, where you sort of walk people through it, you don't just bang them on the head from right. the very beginning, but unless there's obviously a medical right, <laughs> emergency right, that's right. happening. Um, but you kind of give people a chance to kind of hear you and react. Mm-hmm. And then definitely with the older kids. Uh, I think it's important to bring them into the situation mm-hmm. as well and to right. say, you know, there's, we, we're worried there might be something wrong with your blood. Mm-hmm. We need to figure out what that is. Right. Um, we're going to tell kids. We're going to be honest with them once we know. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, when you don't know, mm-hmm. you know, I agree. You have to balance that. Right. And, so, and then the other thing is the families will push you. What is it? What is right. it? What is it? What do we do? What the, you know? What's the prognosis? And, yes. they'll, and they'll push and push and push. You don't have those answers yet. Right. And it's really important to not walk down a road mm-hmm. that you don't know yes. <laughs> where yeah, you're exactly. going. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to set false expectations. Absolutely. And I think you touched on <clears throat> an important nuance, at least in our care network, that sometimes expressing your concern helps ensure that the parents follow through with the workup in a timely fashion. Because if you downplay it too much, you don't know when they're going to go get that x-ray or go right. go to the lab. They may think like, oh, she said it was no big deal. We'll just do that in next month or something. Right. Exactly. Um, so expressing where you are and your concern um, up front, too, and what you're thinking about will help you make sure that they actually go get those labs today, that they go get that chest x-ray tomorrow, right. you know, whatever the agenda was. So, exactly. um, yeah. 
And I think if you had the opportunity, to, again, depending on your level of suspicion, to bring somebody back into the office to go through those results in person, mm -hmm. um, that can be really helpful. And we're also available to help help you formulate how you want to articulate this before right. you meet with the family. So if you get an abnormal CBC back and they have a chest x-ray with a mediastinal mass, you can call me first and mm -hmm. say, you know, I have this patient, I'm really worried about them. Mm -hmm. I need to be able to tell the family what they need to do when they leave my office. Call right. me before you talk to the family. Right. And we'll say, go to clinic, go to the ER, whatever it is, and you'll have a very tangible plan mm -hmm. to give families and that is really empowering. Mm -hmm. It's empowering for you and it's empowering for families. Yeah, that's great. And because sometimes we don't know either how fast someone needs to get to right. you and parents want to know that like, right. well, if I call and they give me an appointment in a month, is that okay? Or do right. I need to be seen tomorrow? And <laughs> right. sometimes we don't really know either. Right. And so um, knowing that we can reach out to you and say, hey, what's the what's a realistic time course here of them needing to see right, you right. is helpful. And this can be, you know, not just leukemia lymphoma, which almost always is seen the same day or the next mm -hmm. day, but bone tumors, right. um, you know, abdominal masses. If right. you have a healthy three-year-old who walks in for their well check and you feel a big abdominal mass and you send them for an ultrasound and they have a high suspicion of having a Wilms, mm -hmm. they have no hematuria, they're happy, they're playful, their blood pressure's okay, we may say, come in tomorrow so mm -hmm. that we can get a sedated CT and right. an MRI and an exam with us and a visit with the surgeon and we can put it all down together. They don't necessarily have to be seen that night right. unless there is some pressing medical reason. Mm -hmm. These are always emotional emergencies. Right. Um, and we'll, oftentimes we will see them the same day. If you mm -hmm. know at 9 o'clock in the morning, right. that's different than knowing at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, mm -hmm. potentially. But medically, we'll always take care of the patients mm -hmm. when they need to be. So walk us through a little bit of the logistics of how we refer a patient to you or when you say um, that we can call you guys. How do we, how do, we do that? Right. So CHOP has a concierge line for physicians. Mm -hmm. um, you can call 1-800-TRY-CHOP. Mm -hmm. The phone rings. Wait for the little voicemail thing and then mm -hmm. hit number two and you will get a live person. Great. And that live person will say, what department do you need to speak with? Um, and they, and if you say, I need to speak with Dr. Stern in oncology or I need to speak with oncology, mm -hmm. they will pick up the phone, they will call me directly, you'll be on hold with them. Mm -hmm. It's a live transfer. Great. 99% um, of the time, I'll be able to talk to you right then. If I'm mm -hmm. in the middle of doing a procedure, I might have to call you back in right. five minutes. Right. But usually I can get to, get to the phone pretty quickly. Great. Um, and then we'll take the history, to, you know, you'll give me the history and the exam findings and we'll work together to get the patient seen. Mm -hmm. um, that's the, probably the best way. You can also call the, my cell phone directly, um, which is 888-ONC-CHOP, O-N-C-C-H-O-P, um, which rings the same exact phone as the people who call me from TriChop. So, okay. But if you only need to remember one number, TriChop is great because you can reach any division in the hospital that yeah. way, um, and that's probably your best bet. Great. So secret, the secret bat line. Yeah, they're not they're <laughs> not phone numbers for families, but they are. Right. I'm a, obviously for providers. That mm -hmm. is, um, and that's a Monday through Friday, you know, mm -hmm. sort of typical business hours. Great. Great. Otherwise, it's around. Great. So. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and helping clarify a little bit about lymphadenopathy and referrals to oncology. It was great to learn more from you and to know that you're there for us as well as our patients. Yeah. Thanks. Of course, it's my pleasure to be here and. You know, we, um, we're we sorry that our services are needed. These are always mm -hmm. really difficult, difficult situations, but um, we're really happy to be able to provide good care for, for your patients. Great, thank you. So, thank you. Thank you for 
listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. Thank you.